Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to our podcast on Leading from the Front. Today's guest is the founder and CEO president of Paratus Group. He's a keynote speaker, a personal skills developer, an author, and a Hero Club member. And after a decorated career in the United States Air Force as a commander and combat veteran, he transitioned into executive roles as a business entrepreneur, a writer, publisher, and public speaker. He co-founded the Paratus Group with the objective to offer solutions for relevant, effective, trustworthy principles, training to teach leadership and situational awareness. And that that idea of leadership and situational awareness is what we're going to focus on today. I really like that. And through that, these leadership abilities that are developed allow for critical decisions to be made in this complex, dynamic world of ours, from home, schools, the workplace, communities, and all of these things to grow leaders so that we can make us all safer. Brian, welcome today to Leading from the Front. Thanks, Gary. Happy to be here. Let's start by giving people a little bit of your background on your military service. Always interested in talking to a a fellow vet and the things that we learn in the military that then takes us on to our careers uh, moving forward. How did you get started? Did you uh, start as an E1 or did you go through ROTC or Air Force Academy? What did you do? Yeah, when I was in high school, I actually thought about going to the Air Force Academy, and then my mom took me to the optometrist, and I found out that I didn't have 20-20 vision, and the only thing at that time I wanted to do was be a pilot. So I put that on the back burner, went and got my four-year degree, then I started doing sales and realized that's not what I wanted to do. So about 18 months after I graduated, I started looking at flying again and, and potentially going to the Air Force, went and talked to a recruiter said, you know, the only thing I would be interested in doing is flying. What can I do? He said, well, you could be a navigator. I said, all right, let's see what happens. And I took the tests, put in my application and was accepted to go to officer training school down in San Antonio. So I went down there in 1987, graduated in three months later, and then headed off to nav school out at Mather Air Force Base. Graduated in 1988 from, from there. My first platform that I flew on was the AWACS at Tinker Air Force Base. And then Retired 23 years later as a as a colonel and a wing commander, and my last assignment was as a wing commander. Yeah, wow. So let me just ask, when you think back at the beginning, I mean, there's some things that I can remember when I was a second lieutenant that I learned real important stuff that served me for my entire career. Do you remember any of those things that, uh, you know, in the beginning, they were kind of wake up calls or things that really, really that you could share with people that would help them realize what they need to do when they're starting out? Yeah, it's a combination of, of, what uh, I learned early on, but then also what I've taken the time to go back and reflect on after my now 34 years in leadership. And one of the key things is to make sure that you listen. That's a major fault in our society today. People listen to respond. They don't listen to learn and then to have learning agility to figure out how to help the person that they're talking to. So listening is extremely important. The second piece is that there's, you've got to have more than one tool and one leadership style because everybody has different personalities and they're going to respond differently. So you have to understand that and know that you can have the same philosophy and the same tenets, but the way that you apply it will be different based on who the individual is. 
And then finally, it's leadership. You can read all the books that you want. You can go to all the classes that you want. But if you don't transition that into the verb where you're actually doing leading, then all that knowledge that you've gained doesn't do you any good. Yeah. So education is great, but until you apply it, it's really not doing much for you, right? It's got to be a behavior and a mindset to apply it. Absolutely. It's got to be a way of life. Yeah. So during my introduction, I, I talked about this idea of, of situational awareness. Awareness is something that we teach a lot in our programs. I mean, it's and you're taking it just another level of not just internal awareness, but situational awareness that people are in when they're leading. Talk a little bit about that and what over the years, how you've transitioned as a leader and becoming more and more aware of that and adapted to it. Yeah, situational awareness is, is a lost art today for the most part. And that goes to a, a, fa- a bunch of failed personal skills that people don't have. And one of those is listening. Um, but you basically have to have eight critical personal skills to be able to have situational awareness. And then it's the development of those skills in addition to establishing a mindset and a behavior of situational awareness that allows you to use that as a tool. For example, as a leader, we just talked about how you have to transition whatever philosophy you, you develop for yourself and whatever tenets you develop yourself into the verb, into leading. Well, if you don't have situational awareness and you're not paying attention to the behavior of the people that work for you, that that the people that are around you, you're not learning from them, you don't have situational awareness, so you're not going to be able to be an effective leader. So that's why the leadership skills and tenets that you develop are extremely important to match that up with the ability to have situational awareness so you can be observant, number one. But number two, what that really allows you to do is look for those learning opportunities because mentoring which is extremely important. And that's one of the key ways that you transition leadership as a philosophy into the verb. But learning opportunities are all day long. Mentoring should not be a 10 minutes once a week with somebody that works for you or works with you. It should happen 10 times a day. Little nuggets, little micro pieces of information that are reinforcing the positive behaviors you want instead of what I call managing by metrics, which is punishing people if they don't do what you want them to do. Under situational awareness, when you talk about that, what strikes me is that a lot of people struggle with that, and there's things that get in their head that prevents them from really being effective. What have you seen that gets in people's ways, and how do you overcome that? From me and from my perspective and what I've seen both in my personal experience and as a coach and as a mentor and and what we do at the Paradis Group, people get so busy doing the tasks that they think that they need to do, and they confuse leadership with management, that they don't know and haven't established what that situational awareness should look like. Situational awareness in and of itself is it's a simple concept. I mean, if you think about leadership, leadership can be very, very simple if you have the proper foundation. So it's the same thing with situational awareness. And situational awareness, just like transitioning leadership into the verb, has to become a mindset and it has to become a behavior. So it's something that has to be done on a repetitive basis. I would almost say that many mentors and coaches and and people that talk about and try to teach leadership in our country today, not just in our country, around the world, where they fail is not developing that and helping to develop that mindset and that behavior. They'll have a four-week seminar or a class and then the, the, you know, and I've been through those myself. You go home, the book goes on the shelf, and you forget all about it because you're not, nothing is reinforcing that mindset, that behavior, those things that you learned so that it turns into that muscle memory. It turns into that thing that you use on a regular basis that allows you to have that situational awareness and then to 
take advantage of the tools that you have in your toolbox for leadership. So certainly a very, very simple concept, but it's not being taught and people aren't developing it as part of their leadership philosophy. That's all people talk about is just their leadership philosophy that they have to develop. What I'm hearing you say, though, is, is uh, and we talk about this a lot in our programs, is leadership development is a process, it's not an event. You talk about mentoring and coaching is moment-to-moment coaching. It's in the moment, happening all the time, and giving leaders the skills to be able to both have leadership awareness for themselves, but also with those that report to them, seeing what they're doing, and then being able to have the skills to coach and mentor them to get better. Absolutely. And and I'll be frank, you know, the first conversation I had with you and I learned how you are doing things with your cohorts and a number of other programs and, and, and things that you have in your leadership mentoring and coaching process. That's one of the things that impressed me because I don't talk to people very often that have those types of repetitive things. They'll They'll talk to a leader once a month or those types of things to try and see how they're doing, give them advice, help critique, but they're not helping with that consistent growth on how to be a leader and then also to be a mentor. And then the other thing that you do that most other other folks don't do is you bring all the employees in because it's not going to be successful if everybody in the organization doesn't understand how communication needs to work, how mentoring needs to work, and what the leader's philosophy is and how that the, that and the decisions tie to the vision and the mission of the company. Yeah. So when we when we talk about this, and I, I appreciate the plug because we've spent a lot of years uh, developing our program to make it very holistic and very applicable to the culture of the organization. And when you talk about taking the education, the training, and turning into behaviors, that's hard. It's very hard. And without the proper support within the organization, it's just simply not going to happen. If you were to describe a process, I don't care if it's mine or yours or, or who else, what do you think leaders need to look at to put an effective process in place to help their people become situationally aware and then to develop. And I'm, I'm not going to let you off the hook on these eight skills. I want to hear the eight skills that you're, you're referring to here in a second, because I think that people need to know what those are. I think that they're key. But what's the process look like for you? What do you, you know, I'm a, I'm a CEO of a company. I've got a thousand people. I want to I want to train them and develop that. And I'll use my words as a CEO. Right? I want to train them to be better leaders. What would you say to me? I guess the first thing I would say is you have to develop your own understanding of what your leadership philosophy and the tenets that you have. Maybe you can add to this, but most of the senior leaders that I've gone in and done coaching and mentoring for, one of the very first things I sit down and ask them is to show me where is your leadership philosophy? Where are your tenets? Where are they written down? And they'll, uh, most of the time they'll say, I don't have any. I don't have it written down. I've, I've, they've got 15 books on the shelf from Colin Powell to you name it but they don't have their own philosophy. They haven't figured out what works for them. And if you don't have it written down and you don't know what your leadership philosophy is, how can you communicate that to the rest of the team members in your organization, right? So that's extremely important. And then that reinforcement and that mentoring throughout the organization is how you develop both your leadership style, how you align decisions, and how you develop that situational awareness and I was very fortunate. I had a great leader very early in my career that taught me the two up, two down rule. I'm responsible to know what my boss and my boss's boss wants. And then they're responsible to communicate and mentor down to me. And then I'm required to mentor two levels down. So that in, in enables mentoring throughout the entire organization. 
It develops that situation awareness. So you do those little micro mentoring sessions with the people that you're around on a regular basis. But then it also fosters communication through the organization so that the mission, vision, and decisions are all communicated. They're all consistent and, and the company can be very successful. So when you when you were a commander, a wing commander, you had commanders working for you. After probably my third year in the Air Force, that's when I always had somebody working for me as I was growing as an officer. You know, you become a flight commander, then you become a, you know, yeah. different organizations. I went to the Pentagon a couple times. I'm sorry, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I enjoyed it both times. I was in some pretty, pretty awesome, awesome jobs. And and probably even more important, I had great bosses during that time that I learned a lot uh, from. That's important. It's everything, yeah. So that, what, the reason I said that is because when you, Colonel, when you were at the highest level and you're a wing commander, you've got other levels of, of commanding officer type people, 04s, 05s reporting to you. These are, you know, 15, 20 year veterans. They know their jobs. They're, they're supposed to be able to lead well. What do you think were the biggest challenges to some of these other officers that where they got it? They just keep getting in the way. They just can't quite understand this concept that you're talking about of situational awareness, and they just seem to figure out ways to screw it up. And how did you coach them? I mean, how do you work with that? Right. So when I was a wing commander, I had six group commanders that worked for me. So I had six other colonels that worked for me in the wing. So my job was to directly mentor them and then to make sure that they then mentored the lieutenant colonels that worked for them and on and on and on down down through the organization and then work that communication back, back up. Where I I've been very, very successful is ensuring that that communication is constantly taking place. And when you have that situation awareness and that mentoring philosophy and you're looking for those learning opportunities and you turn it into what you want the behavior to be instead of punishing behavior that you don't like, that's how you're successful. As I learned my leadership philosophy and style over my 34 years, I had great leaders that I took nuggets from. I didn't take everything that they had. And I, so I pulled probably from five different people to come up with my own philosophy. But I also paid attention to who I saw as bad leaders. And I said, okay, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to punish like this. That's what allowed me then, like I said, to establish the situation awareness and to consistently be looking for and reinforcing the behavior I wanted to do instead of punishing bad behavior. It's no different than parenting or trying to train a dog. If it's all you do is yell at them for something that, you, that they did wrong, that's all they're going to focus on is you yelled at them for something that they did wrong instead of working with them and giving them positive reinforcement on the, on the good behavior that you, you want them to get to. It's the other thing that I learned during this time period that not only helped me as a leader in the Air Force and, and a leader today in what I do, but as a parent, is that you have to have patience. So that's a critical component. And then you also have to embrace mistakes. And it's not just you embracing your own mistakes and learning from those mistakes, but recognizing and giving other people the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and move on. And I had, a again, a, a leader early on in my career who said, Brian, every time something happens, I want you to look at it from this perspective. Is it a mistake or is it a crime? If it's a mistake, then it's a leadership opportunity. It's a learning opportunity. If it's a crime, now you have, you have other things that you're responsible to do in that situation. That's a nice distinction. I've never I've never heard that distinction before with uh, a mistake versus a crime. And it kind of puts it into perspective, doesn't it? You know, nobody got hurt. It's a mistake. OK, just take it easy and yeah, be a little be a little more patient. So 
What are the eight skills? What, what have you designed, developed, and created over the years that can help other leaders think about these eight skills? And so the first one is uh, being self-aware. And there's three parts of that. When it comes to situation awareness, especially when you're applying it to safety and security, you want to know what's going on in your surroundings. You, we teach people to spend 30 to 40 seconds anytime they go into a new location, whether they've been there 100 times or it's the first time, and to look at the exits. Is there security? Are there cameras? Uh, are there locks on doors? What would I do in a certain situation? So you're aware of what's going on around you. Or if you're walking to your car, you're not on your phone. You're paying attention if there's people that are, are keeping an eye on you, those types of things. So that's the first part. And the second part of being self-aware is knowing what your capabilities are. We all have different capabilities. And I've seen so many people, as you might have as well, that think they can do anything, think that they can solve any problem, think that they can take on any bully. Well, well, we, we call those teenagers, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, then, then there's a lot of adult teenagers. Um, yes, there are. <laughs> but the, the, the main difference is knowing what your awareness is. So that was another key thing that, I, that was, uh, I used the Donozo slap analogy a lot. I got the, the Donozo slap a couple of times when I was a young leader when I was trying to do things that I just didn't have the skill set for. And I was trying to micromanage instead of letting my people do what, do their job. I'm a big fan of General Patton, and, and, and I'll paraphrase it, but his statement that says, tell somebody what you want to do and then get out of the way, and they will amaze you every single time. Once I learned that and let people do that and let people that had skills that I didn't have take over, we were much more successful, and they were much more successful. And then the third part of being self-aware is knowing that your words and your actions mean something and have effect on other people. So those are the three key parts of being self-aware. Um, the second Personal, critical personal skill is you need to be perceptive. It's a skill that you have to develop. Many, many people today don't have it. Then you also have to listen actively. We talked about that already. I see every single day, and I'm sure you do as well, that people listen to respond. You can tell by looking at them that they're not listening to what you're saying. They've made up their mind. They think you're either right or wrong, or they have a key point that they think is more important, and they're waiting for their opportunity to tell that instead of actively listening. Um, the third one is that you have to think critically. We don't do that today. We get fake news. You follow fake news. You don't think about it. You don't apply thought process to it. So you have to be able to think critically. You have to have learning agility. And whether that's as a leader or in situation awareness, if you can't learn from your mistakes, both in the past and that are happening right now, based on your ability to listen and think critically after having been perceptive, then you're not going to be able to adapt to solve the problem that's being put in front of you. You have to be decisive. One of the things that I saw at the Pentagon that used to frustrate me is that people wouldn't make decisions. It was, I'm going to push this to somebody else. I don't want to do that because that, that's what politicians do. So it becomes ingrained in those people that have been there for a very, very long time. When you're down at a wing, you're down at a group or a squadron, you have to make decisions. You can't wait to do that. And then finally, you have to be able to communicate, uh, both to be able to communicate verbally like we are right now but have the ability to translate everything that I just talked about with these with those skills and then be able to effectively communicate that either to your boss, to your colleagues, or to those people that work for you. So in the eight skills, one of the things that really struck me, Brian, was you talked about decisiveness. And I was working with an executive yesterday, and it reminded me of the HBR article on why CEOs fail and what makes them successful. And it turns out that most of the CEOs that failed, failed because of an inability to make a decision. They would be too slow in making the decision. And 
there was never a case where somebody made decisions too fast. In fact, the ones that made it fast quite often would learn from their mistake very fast and they would make a new decision to fix their bad mistake. So it's it's an interesting topic that we could probably spend hours on uh, on decisiveness. But these other skills that you're talking about, very similar to the things that we work at uh, Instaterius. One of the things that you were talking about around coaching that that struck me is years ago, Ken Blanchard wrote a book called The One Minute Manager. And it's still relevant today. You know, the one minute goal, one minute praising, one minute reprimand. And all that is, is the one minute goal is making sure that we know what we want a direct report to do. So that's simple. And then it's coaching in the moment. One minute reprimand, one minute praising is what he called it, but it's coaching in the moment. How are they doing? And I always talk about micromanagement is when you are looking over a person's shoulder, telling them how to do the job. If you have to do that, that's not micromanagement, that's training. If they're incompetent and they need to learn how, they need training. And that might be a high level of coaching and that's fine. But most professionals are pretty good at doing their job and they just need to be left to their own devices. And that's really what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm a big believer that decision-making should be pushed down to the lowest level. Uh, a big fan of General Patton. You tell somebody what to do, not tell them how to do it, get out of the way, and they'll amaze you every single time. What I've seen with a lot of managers that are their managers and not leaders, they're trying to make all the decisions for their people. And that's when it gets difficult and tough to make decisions when you're trying to do it for everybody. Jeff Bezos is a perfect example. He makes one to two decisions a day. Now, it affects all of Amazon, but he doesn't make decisions that affect the logistics center or you know, basic things along those lines. And then the other thing that I pointed out to everybody that ever worked for me and that I do in coaching and mentoring as well, is that use the 80% rule. Some people are afraid to make a decision unless they have all of the information. Well, you're never going to have all the information because there's always going to be another, another piece that you think you need to be able to make that decision. So get to 80%, what your gut tells you is 80%, then make the decision, jump off, move forward. And then like you said, then you can, as other information comes in, you pivot, you change, you do what is necessary so that the ultimate decision is the one that you that makes you successful. But that goes back to those critical personal skills that you have to have. You have to have learning agility, be able to think critically. You have to be perceptive. You have to do all of those things so that when you make a decision, that process continues to go on so that you can refocus and pivot if you need to. Yeah. So these eight skills that you're talking about are all integrated, aren't they? They're all, they're all part of a whole. You can't get, you can't do one without the other basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, they build on one each one another and eventually are all integrated. Absolutely. So you talked earlier about how leaders need to have more than one style and, you know, you just can't use the same style. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you do with leaders to develop a, a broader base of styles? Right. So Anytime I do coaching or mentoring or anytime I was in an organization, I paid attention to the personality of the individual. So if I go in and do coaching and mentoring in a company, one of the first things that happens is it's just a very basic personality test so that the individual can learn more about what their personality is, what their strengths and weaknesses are. But then also so the leaders know how to communicate. I learned a lesson even after having been in leadership for a long time when I was working to introduce the development of personal skills into a high school. And we went, we had six different classes for this one freshman class that we went into. And we had established a question and answer session to reinforce the content where we needed the students to participate. 
So the first two classes, it went well. About 70% of the kids participated. The remaining classes, maybe 10% did. We go, why is it like this? Well, it turns out after we did a personality test that in those four classes, about 70 to 75% of the kids were introverts. They didn't want to participate. They were afraid to speak up, yet that's what we were asking them to do. So that's just a, a general example as a leader that you don't put somebody in front of 50 people to talk about a topic if they're an introvert. Pick, you put the right person in the right bus to do the right job. So that's the first thing that that allows you to do. Uh, but then the second thing is if you have an introvert or you have somebody that doesn't like authority, if you have somebody that has a whole bunch of other traits that you can think of and you try to use a leadership style on that person, like my dad did with me, which was very authoritative, you do what I tell you, or some people need that. But especially today, most people don't. But that's where it's, it's, it's really what I talk about. You change the narrative and you change the way that you interact with people. Your leadership style really doesn't change. You know, you talked about, you know, the, the one, one in one minute. I use the Oreo cookie rule, you know, praise, then you deal with whatever the issue was, and then you reinforce with another positive on the other side. So it's good, bad, good. And then they come out of there and they forgot what the bad was, but you've reinforced it, uh, the behavior that you want. So in the last year, you know, when working on this, what have you learned new about this whole process of leadership development that you might be able to share, uh, kind of finish up today with some of the things that, some of the mistakes you've made, some of the patience you've had to show, some of the uh, embracing of learning opportunities, if you want to call it that, that you've learned since you got out of the military and in the last year that you could share with people and say, you know, this is, this is what's going on. What's, what's happened with Brian? Well, in the military, we do have a very good mentorship program. And that is something that is absolutely missing in the private sector. I'm sure you experience it all the time. You talk to CEOs and presidents of companies and they think they got their act together when in essence, there's a lot that can be imp improved upon. Every athlete has a coach. Why somebody that's in a level of responsibility of a CEO or, or a president that doesn't have a coach and somebody to mentor them, that continually baffles me. And it's, it's part of a education process that people like you and I consistently talk about. The other thing that, that always challenges me and I get frustrated about that I have to be patient about is they all want to do the traditional type training. They want to go to a, an eight-hour eight class or a, send their people to a three-day seminar. And then all of a sudden, the Omni, Omni, VOR, they're now leaders. Instead of putting that process together where you are establishing that mentorship philosophy, establishing situation awareness, and then continually doing that every single day so it becomes the behavior and the mindset of every individual and of the organization. So those are, are probably two of the, the things that, that really frustrate me. In a big arching frustration is about 75% of the kids coming out of college today don't have well-developed personal skills. So those eight skills that I just talked about, seven or eight skills that I just talked about, and how they apply to situation awareness and leadership, these young men and women don't have these skills. So how do, what do we do to make sure that they get those skills? And that's why I, when I mentioned earlier in our conversation about how it's important to not just train and mentor the leaders of a company, you've got to have a program for all of the employees so they learn the necessary skills to be successful. They can then take on the responsibility to make critical decisions on behalf of the leaders of the company so they can focus on what they need to focus on. Yes, yeah, so, so many things that you're talking about that resonate with me. Uh, this podcast subtitle is called Leadership is a Responsibility, Not a Position. And we want people to take all the things that you're talking about and other guests are talking about and apply them regardless of what leadership position they're in. Because 
in some way, shape or form, many people are going to be parents someday. And there's no more important leadership position than being a parent and being able to follow all the things that I, I love to embrace mistakes. If it's not a crime, let your, you know, just work with your children to learn from the mistake. You don't have to beat them. I have uh, two sons. One will turn 40 this year. The other one just turned 37 last week. I never grounded them. I never hit them. I never punished them. I disciplined them. If they did something and I would say, okay, you need to go rake the lawn. You need to go clean the car. You need to do something to add value to the family because what you just did was disrespectful and it took value away from the family. So that's what we did. We were very creative with a lot of those things. And when their mother and I would sit down and go, okay, we need to discuss this and figure out what you're going to do, what we're going to do in the emotional moment, they would look at us going, ah, oh, crap, mom and dad are going to put their heads together. They're going to come up with something I'm going to hate to do, you know? So from that standpoint, yeah, it was prevention. There's going to be, a, there's going to be impact. I think you talked about that, the impacts of, uh, of what you do, right? That's one of the things that you talked about around self-awareness, become aware. And we talked to our kids right from the beginning of the impact of their behaviors. So there's a lot of great stuff here, Brian, and uh, really appreciate your comments and your thoughts. And uh, I know you're doing great things uh, with a lot of people and helping them uh, become more and more effective as leaders and in their life. Uh, so uh, thank you for your service. Thanks for being a fellow vet. I really appreciate it. Do you have any final words for people? Anything you'd like to share at the end here? No, I'd just like to follow up with your point about, about discipline that most parents don't really realize when you do something along those lines, what you're doing is giving that young man or woman an opportunity to think and have a retrospective view of what they just did. And that allows them to take ownership of their own behavior instead of, you know, a short yelling at somebody, punishing somebody, and then you as a parent don't do anything. It, and it also builds in those learning opportunities. I love that, that analogy. Great. Well, yeah, we used to, if they did something that we wanted them to think about, we never asked why, by the way, why did you do that? Because, and we teach this in coaching, you should never ask an employee that you feel that what they did was wrong. You should never ask why, because it's actually setting up an opportunity for them to come up with a great excuse. Now, under your critical thinking that you mentioned the eight skills, the question is, what were you thinking? What got you here? How did you make the decision to get to this point? Because that's what we need to change. And we would say to our sons, I want you to think of three things that you can do next time that would be more effective than what you did this time and write them down. Well, and absolutely. And that also identifies, was there a misperception of something that you told them? So did communication break down? Did something happen that allowed that to happen? One of the things that I used as a commander and I use as a parent is I don't ask, you know, what were you thinking? I'll go, I'm confused. Explain to me how you got to where you are. And then a lot of times it's going to be, well, you said this. And, you know, it's one of those, well, maybe I said it or maybe that's what you heard, but this is what we meant. Now let's go forward from there. I love it. Well, Brian, I really appreciate your time, your thoughts, your wisdom. Maybe we'll do this again sometime because we've got a lot to talk about. But uh, I want to uh, thank Colonel Brian Searcy, Air U.S. Air Force retired. Thank you for your service, sir, and for all the great things that you've done for people previously and since. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. This is Dr. Gary making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And this has been Leading from the Front. Thank you. Be well. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. 
Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.